All right, God bless you guys this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We're jumping back in to Romans 8 where we left off last week. While you're turning there, let me ask you, um, I'm assuming many, if not most of you, have recently heard the name Jeremy Lin. Heard Jeremy Lin. Yeah, point guard for the New York Knicks. Um, What's funny is as of two weeks ago, probably none of us had heard of him not a single one of us. Uh, He was bouncing around various major and minor league teams, including Houston and Golden State. Knicks picked him up. But then about two weeks ago, uh, um, all of their superstars, all their best players were were out of the game. They were taken out for various reasons. And so the coach reluctantly puts Lynn on the court and gives him the ball. And the kid works magic wins seven games straight, scores 136 points in five starts. That's the most of any starting player in modern NBA history. Guy is incredible. New York is going crazy over this whole insanity thing. Um, But what I want to know is how are Houston and Golden State feeling right now? (laughs) Don't you know there's some coaches asking themselves, how did we let this guy go? How did we not recognize the game changer that we had sitting on our bench? But before we rake those guys over the coals, we need to realize, actually, all of humanity is guilty of that same mistake. Humanity as a whole has failed to recognize the game changer that God has made available to us through the Spirit. You give the Spirit the ball and He'll do magic. He will do more for you than win some games. He will transform your life. He will lead you into all of the blessings and fullness that God has for you. And we began to look at that last week, Romans 8, 1 through 11. We we looked at what Paul said about the Spirit. He revealed to us that the Holy Spirit is the solution to every problem we face. The Holy Spirit is the agent of God in saving us in the past and in the present, and in the future. Well, in our passage this morning, 12 through 17, Paul wants to focus on that middle one, the salvation of the Spirit in the present. He has a lot more to say about that. What does the Spirit want to do in your life right now? Now, if you'll recall from last week, we said that while the work of the Spirit in the past through regeneration and the work of the Spirit in the future through resurrection are are both passive to us. We don't do anything. The Spirit does all of that. Regeneration, resurrection, totally Him. The work of the Spirit in the present, what He wants to do in your life right now, transforming you and leading you into all the fullness and blessing of God, that requires our participation. We have a part to play in the Spirit's work in our lives in the present. So look with me. We talked about our part in the Spirit's work back in verse 4. If you read verse 4 with me again. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Our part in the Spirit's work in our lives is to walk according to the Spirit or live according to the Spirit, not the flesh. Those are synonymous terms, live or walk. Now, if you'll recall what we said last week, when Paul is talking about walking or living according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh, he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers by those commands. Uh, Look back again, just to review this in your minds, make sure this is fresh, verses 8 and the beginning of 9, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, however you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. 
When Paul wants to talk about the distinction between believers and unbelievers, he uses a different preposition. Really short, simple preposition, in. In is about who you are. It's about your identity, your status or position before God. Those who are in the flesh live in the realm of the flesh. That's unbelievers. Those who are in the spirit live in the realm of the spirit. They are believers. Now, what do you have to do to get out of the flesh and into the spirit? You have to believe the gospel. The moment that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, God takes you out of the realm of the flesh and places you permanently in the realm of the spirit. Okay, so unbeliever, believer, that's about the word in. But this is a different word. Verse four, same word that he will use in verses 12 and 13 to live or walk according to the spirit. That's about lifestyle, according to. It's about a pattern of behavior. Those who live or walk according to the flesh are those who pattern their lives after the deeds of the flesh. They give in to the sinful desires of our human flesh, our fallen humanity. In contrast, those who live according to the spirit or walk according to the spirit, those are those believers who follow the desires of the spirit. Their lives are characterized by the righteous desires of the spirit. Okay, so our part in the spiritual life, our part in the work of the spirit is to live or to walk according to the spirit or to use different words, look at verse 14. Paul gives us a synonym in verse 14. He says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. To live according to the spirit is to be led by the spirit, to follow the spirit. If you want the spirit to work magic in your life, to transform you and fill you with all the blessings of God, you have to let him lead. You you have to give him the ball. You have to follow his direction. You have to surrender your life to him. That's what Paul has in mind here. Not a once for all surrender to the Holy Spirit, but a daily choice to surrender your life to the spirit, to follow the spirit's leadings each and every day. When I hear this phrase, led by the Spirit, um, I like to picture it like a a father leading a child. Um, To be led by the Spirit is to be led by your father, to hold up your hand and let it be placed in your father's hand. Your father grasps your hands and leads you. The father sets the direction. The father guides you and provides for you. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Your hand is in the Spirit's hand. He sets the direction of your life. He leads you away from sin and towards righteousness. So our part in this spiritual life, if we want to experience the benefits of the Spirit in our lives, we are to walk according to the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. Let the Spirit lead. Give Him the ball in your life, and He will do amazing things. And that's actually the big idea of Paul's passage. That's where he spends the bulk of this passage, is describing what the Spirit-led life looks like. When you give the Spirit the ball, what are the results? What does the Spirit do in you right now in this life when you let him lead? Look with me at verse 13. Paul gives us a summary in verse 13. He says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Same summary he gave us last week. If you live according to the flesh, the result is death. If you live according to the Spirit, the result is life. Remember, we talked about this last week. This is not about your eternal destiny. 
It's not about living with God for eternity in heaven or being separated from him in eternity in hell. This is just about the rules of how the universe works. If you walk in the flesh, if your life is characterized by sin, the unavoidable consequence will be to experience death in every sense of that word. You will live a life full of shame and regret, suffering and pain. It may end in premature physical death. That's the unavoidable consequence of sin for everybody. For unbelievers and believers both, if you give in to sin, you will experience a life of death. In contrast, if your life is characterized by the deeds of the Spirit, by the righteous leanings of the Spirit, then your life will be characterized by life in the fullest sense. What we looked at last week, a life full of peace, full of joy, full of God's blessings and provision. That's, that's kind of the summary of this whole passage. Be led by the Spirit, you will experience life to its fullest. Now, Paul wants to describe that life to us. He wants to give us a lot more detail in this passage. What exactly does it look like when you let the Spirit lead? If you give the Spirit the ball in your life on a daily basis, let him lead, what will that produce in your life? Paul gets into a lot more detail. He starts in verses 12 and 13 by telling us the Spirit-led life is a life of victory, the victory over sin. Look with me again. Let's read these two verses again, verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When Paul says in verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. What he is saying is you're no longer under obligation to the flesh, meaning you can say no to the flesh. Now, just to review from last week, when we say flesh, what we're talking about is that, that sinful bent within humanity, that, that bent within us that leans towards sin, our innate desire for sin. Paul's saying that you, if you are led by the Spirit, you can say no to that natural innate bent within you. Now, we easily miss how significant that is. That's an incredibly significant statement, that we can say no to our bent towards sin. I want to ask you a question. What is the reason, the cause, for everything that's bad in the world? Wars, famine, corruption, greed, immorality, selfishness, violence. What's the cause of all of those things? The cause is that humanity cannot say no to the flesh. Humanity cannot say no to their sinful desires, to their innate bent towards sin. I was looking at a book recently, a really depressing book, that a number of studies that they have done that concluded that all of the problems in this world can be traced to the fact that human beings are hardwired to be greedy. That's just what we are. We are hardwired to be greedy. Really depressing book because they couldn't offer any solutions. No way to escape that. Now, we've actually seen that depressing reality throughout the book of Romans. Paul has come back over and over again to this idea that those who are separated from God cannot do what's right. They cannot help but sin. But we can. We are different. We can resist sin through the Spirit. We can choose to say no to the flesh by the power of the Spirit. That's an incredible thing. Through the power of the Spirit, you can do the supernatural. You can say no to that otherwise unavoidable bent within you towards sin. But Paul goes further. 
He goes further in verse 13. He tells us that not only can we say no to the desires of the flesh, but we can actually, through the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. Why does Paul point us to the body? Why does he care so much about the body? We talked about this last week. It's not that the body is more sinful than the rest of you. It's not that the body is the only thing bad about you. It's that with your body, you are interacting with a fallen world. So, so your body is, is how you are going to experience temptation and often how you're going to exercise sin. Your body is just kind of the, the place where sin happens because that's how you interact with this fallen world. Paul's point is, really interestingly here, not only can you resist the deeds of the body, but you can actually put them to death. You can crucify the deeds, the sinful desires of your body. This is incredible news. Not only can you resist them, but you can actually mortify them. You can put them to death. In other words, you can gradually diminish the sinful desires and deeds that flow so naturally from your fallen humanity. Paul describes that process of of putting to death the deeds of the body, mortifying the flesh. He He describes it in great detail in one of my favorite passages anywhere in Scripture. Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, notice Paul begins with our part, our responsibility. We are to work out our salvation in a spirit of reverence through obedience, but by obeying God on a continual basis. We need to continually be willing to obey God. That's our part. When we do our part, then God does his. God in us does what? Well, he works in us so that we both will and work for his good pleasure. To work. Paul's talking about the action of obedience. God empowers you to actually be able to obey Him. That's good news, but it gets better because He doesn't just empower your obedience. What else does He do? He causes you to will to obey. Will means desire. It means that as you obey, God changes your desires. He provides within you not just the power to obey today, but the desire to obey tomorrow. That's the great news of the spiritual life. God is not just content to have you obey. That's not enough for God. He wants you to crave obedience. He wants you to love obedience. So as you choose to obey today, he empowers your obedience in the moment and grows your desire for obedience in the future. That's incredible news. That's been so encouraging to me. I don't know if you can identify with me on this, but there are many days when I face um, a temptation and I know what I should do in that moment. I know I should resist that temptation, but to be honest, I really don't want to. I say to God, God, I I know what I need to do, but I don't want to do it. For me, that usually happens five minutes after we put the kids to sleep. Any given night, five minutes after we put the kids to bed, I know at that time I have a bunch of chores to do. I I need to do some chores. I got some bills probably to pay. And most important of all, I need to initiate with my wife. Julie and I have not been able to get a word in edgewise to each other because our kids are demanding. That's just the life of parents. It's time to invest in my marriage and spend time with her. But what do I want to do? 
I want to collapse in a cold, dark closet. I want to, to go to sleep, take a hot shower, or watch TV. I want to totally check out because I am so tired. The good news of Philippians 2 is in that moment of weakness, God says to me, Blake, it's okay. If you will obey me today, I promise to grow your desire to obey in the future. If you will obey me today, I will change your heart. I will grow you so that tomorrow you will want to obey at least a little bit more. That's really great news for any of you who are are really being beaten down by some kind of addictive sin. Maybe it's pornography or, or gluttony, something that you just cannot seem to say no to. It is so strong within you. The desire just compels you. You desperately want to give in to that sin. But God is saying to you, If you will choose to obey me today, even though you don't want to, I will gradually diminish your desire for sin and grow your desire for righteousness. That's incredible news. God is not content to just have you obey. He wants you to want it. He wants you to love obedience. And so as you obey through his spirit, he changes your heart so you want to obey more tomorrow. That's the life of victory. The life you get by being spirit-led. If you give the spirit the ball, if you will follow him, God will transform you to give you victory over sin now and in the future. That's the first part of the spirit-led life that Paul wants us to reflect on. The second, second thing the spirit will do for us as we give him the ball is he will give us a life of intimacy with our heavenly father. Read with me verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul tells us that we are sons. We have been adopted as sons of God. Now, I don't know, ladies, if you've ever read that verse, that passage, and wondered, it sounds like Paul's a a little sexist here. Why does he not say that we are sons and daughters of God? Might throw you off. Well, Paul's not being sexist. Here's what's going on. In the ancient world, both under Roman law and Jewish law, sons had more rights than daughters. It's just the way it was. That wasn't God's design. Just the way it was. Sons had more rights than daughters. They had more privileges than daughters. That's how families worked in the ancient world. There was a distinction between what you had as a son versus what you had as a daughter. What Paul wants you to know is that distinction doesn't hold in the family of God. Doesn't matter what gender you are in the family of God, you have all the rights and privileges of son. That's what belongs to all of us, men and women alike. We are privileged sons of God with all the rights and privileges that that comes with. Now in verse 14, what Paul is doing in verse 14 is he is proving what he said at the end of verse 13. The end of verse 13, he said that if we are living this spirit-led life, we will live. We will experience life in the fullest. Verse 14 is his proof. If you are being led by the spirit, then you are experiencing life as a son of God. All who are led by the spirit are sons of God. Now, we have to be a little bit careful here. We have to recognize Paul is not implying the opposite. Paul is not saying that if you are a believer who is not living a spirit-led life, you're a believer who's giving into sin, Paul's not saying then you are therefore not a son of God. He's not implying the opposite. 
For those of you who are into logic, what's going on here is if I say, if A, then B, that does not imply if not A, then not B. That's a logical fallacy. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's not saying anything about believers who are not living a spirit-led life. What he's doing is he's talking to us who are. Those of us who are letting the spirit lead our lives, all of us are sons of God. What Paul's talking about here is confidence. If you are being led by the spirit, if you see the spirit leading your life, that is proof to you. It's assurance. It's confidence that you are indeed a son of God, a son of God. God is your father. Now, Paul tells you what kind of father you have in the next verse. In verse 15, he describes what kind of father we have. He tells us, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Now, uh, that phrase needs a little bit of explanation. Because you've been paying attention as we've walked through the book of Romans. You know, back in chapter 6, Paul said very clearly, we are slaves. All of us, we are slaves of God. We belong to God. We have been enslaved to him. Paul's point, though, is in this slavery to God, in this relationship that we have with God, the relationship we enjoy with God is not a slave-style relationship. Slavery between human beings, it's always characterized by, by fear and servility. That's not what characterizes our relationship with God. The relationship we have with God is a son-type relationship, a relationship characterized by intimacy by love, compassion, mercy, blessing. That's the kind of relationship we have with God. It's a relationship that, that exhorts us or allows us to cry out to God in our moment of need as Abba. That word is really significant there. Abba, what does that mean? Abba is, is basically the personal, the informal, the intimate way to refer to your dad. Significantly, Jews never called God this. No way. God is way too up there. God is way too formal for us. Abba would be like calling God daddy. Jews just weren't going to go there. Interestingly, though, one Jew did. One Jew was willing to call God his Abba. It was Jesus towards the end of his earthly life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, his moment of greatest need, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus enjoyed an intimacy with his heavenly Father. He could call his Father, Daddy. Daddy, help me, please. And now God invites us to enjoy that same kind of intimacy, that same kind of relationship that Jesus had. We can call out to God in our moment of need, dad, help me. Now I'm very lucky. I I grew up with an earthly father who always welcomed me In, in my moment of need, no matter what I'd done, even when I did some really dumb things as an adolescent, my dad always welcomed me. With open arms. He never pushed me away. He never judged me. He never scowled at me. He never condemned me. He welcomed me with a hug and said, okay, what do we need to do to fix this? Let me help you. If you didn't have that kind of dad, I know many people don't. I'm very sorry for you. It was never what God intended. But the good news is, if you have trusted in Jesus as your savior, you do have that kind of dad now. You have that kind of dad in heaven, welcoming you with open arms, even if you've screwed up. Even if you've messed up, he wants you to come to him as Abba, to experience his love, his forgiveness, his care, his compassion. 
That is God's relationship towards you. He wants you to enjoy all of his peace, all of his blessing. That kind of warmth, that kind of intimacy is available to all believers who live the spirit-led life. Now, now you have to live the spirit-led life to enjoy it. All believers are sons of God. No matter what you do, even if you mess up big time in life, you will always be a son of God. But to enjoy that relationship, to experience warmth and intimacy and peace and joy in the presence of your heavenly dad, you need to walk with him. Uh, John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 1. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God is light. He is perfect. And and as a result of that, he cannot fellowship with those who are walking in sin. If you're a believer who is choosing to walk in sin, you're, you're choosing to hold on to some sin in your life, you are still a son or daughter of God but you're not enjoying fellowship with him because you can't. It's not because he's pushing you away. It's because you're building a wall between the two of you with your sin. Every time you give into that sin, you place another brick in the wall of separation between you and your father. He will always be your father, but you're not enjoying life with him. It's like you're an estranged son. You have pushed yourself away. The good news is, on the other side of that wall, right now, God is looking to you with open arms. All you have to do is turn around. All you have to do is look to him. He will bust that wall down. The moment you confess your sins, he takes a sledgehammer to it. It's gone. He welcomes you back into the light to experience all the joy and warmth and intimacy of a relationship with your dad. That's what's available to all who live a spirit-led life. Intimacy, peace, joy, provision with God as your father, your heavenly dad who loves you and welcomes you always with open arms. That's the second thing that's available to us by living a spirit-led life. Third, confident hope. Not just victory, not just intimacy, but confident hope. Look with me at the last verses in the passage, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul is talking about the witness of the Spirit. Literally here, the Holy Spirit bears witness or testifies with our spirit to us that we are indeed sons of God and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. He's talking here about assurance. When you live the Spirit-led life, one of the consequences or results is that the Spirit speaks to you. He speaks to you to remind you, to assure you, to promise to you that you are indeed a son of God. That's, it's real easy to see that from the opposite side. If I choose to walk in sin, what often happens? Well, as I do that day after day, walking in sin, I begin to slip into doubt and fear, I begin to feel really guilty, really ashamed of myself, and I don't feel like a son of God. I feel distant from God. It's harder and harder for me to believe that God is actually my loving father the more I give in to sin. But if I'll walk in righteousness, if I'll walk in truth, then my confidence grows. Paul's talking about subjective confidence, assurance here. If you are led by the spirit, if you let the spirit lead your life, he will continually speak to your heart and remind you and build your confidence in the fact that you are indeed a son and heir of God. 
Now, when he says heir, son, we've figured that out. When he says heir, that implies something. That implies that we have an inheritance, that we have something that we are looking forward to in the future. He tells us whatever this is as an heir of God, it's something we will share with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so what is that? Well, he tells us right at the end of the verse, he gives us the answer really simply, it is glory. We will share glory with Jesus. Now, um, we began to talk about that last week. What is the glory that in the future we will inherit with Jesus? Part of it is resurrection. In the future, God will bring to life your perfected body. Just as Jesus is bodily perfected, so will you be. But resurrection isn't all that God has in mind. When God is talking about glory, he's talking about how in the future he has promised to make everything right, to make this universe right again, to make everything perfect, everything whole and complete and blessed. And the point of this is being an heir means that you will be there. When God makes everything perfect, you will be there. You'll be part of it. You will experience life forever in a perfected universe. That's what it means to be an heir of God. It is glory. It is the life forever in a perfected, made right universe. Now, what exactly will that look like? What will it look like to live in glory forever? I don't exactly know. The Bible doesn't give us a ton of detail, but it's really interesting what Paul says in the next verse. And study this next week, next verse, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. When you receive your inheritance, which God simply calls glory, life forever in a perfected universe, whatever it is, it will be so awesome that it will make all of the pain and suffering of this life seem like nothing in comparison. I don't even know if we're going to remember the pain of this life. Not because we can't, but because why? Why remember it when you enjoy something so much more perfect? The excellence of glory will make everything in this life pale in comparison. God wants you to know with confidence that you have a glorious future in store. If you are living a life led by the Spirit, then the Spirit will whisper to your heart over and over again, your best is yet to come. A glorious future awaits you. You will inherit this incredible thing called glory with Jesus Christ himself. That's great news. We have a glorious future, a future that is glorious even if we suffer now. That's where Paul goes at the end of the verse. Now, you would expect that we who are sons of God, that, that we would probably live pretty good lives now. If you're son of God, an heir of God, you would expect to live a good life, but unfortunately we suffer. God wants us to know when we suffer, that shouldn't surprise us or shock us because the ultimate son, son number one, Jesus himself, suffered in this life. So when we suffer because of our allegiance to him, it actually, for us, it's proof. It's proof, it's assurance that just as Jesus suffered, just as we share in his sufferings, so we will share in his glory. If you suffer now, it proves your inheritance in the future. Now, I think it can be easy for us to miss the the significance, to overlook the magnitude of what Paul is trying to say here when he he calls us heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Um, A few years ago, I don't know if you were reading in the paper, but a woman named Leona Helmsley died, and she left behind a very strange will. In her will, she left $12 million to this to a Maltese named Trouble. Got $12 million. That was more money than she left to any of her grandkids. Now, 
before you roll your eyes, I want you to think about this. That sounds absurd to us because if here's where humanity is, then here's where dogs are. And it seems really absurd for someone here to leave $12 million to something down here. But as absurd as that sounds, where's God on this scale? Somewhere infinitely up there. We are much closer to dogs than we are to God. So if you want to know what is an absurd inheritance, it's that God would give us an inheritance, that he would give us eternal glory. That's the absurd inheritance, not Leona Helmsley's dog. (laughs) God wants you to understand the privilege that is yours. You are not just a son, you are an heir and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. An eternity of glory is promised to you. That's incredible. From the creator of the universe, from whom we don't even deserve forgiveness, and yet he shares with us this infinite inheritance of glory. As you live the spirit-led life, the spirit witnesses to you. He reminds you, he whispers to your heart, you are a son, you are an heir. Your best is yet to come. He reminds you of that and builds your confidence in it. Live the spirit-led life because as you do, you experience victory over sin, intimacy with our heavenly father, and confident hope in your future. That's what the spirit will do if you'll give him the ball. If you put him in control, he will give you these things. He will build these things in your life. Now with the remaining time I have, I want to get practical want to apply this. What does it actually look like to live this spirit-led life? How do we actually do it? How do we apply this and put it into practice? Go back to verse 13, phrase that we just looked at for a moment. What is our part? By the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. That's our part. If you want to live the spirit-led life, your part is through the power of the spirit, you are to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I want you to notice two things about this command. This is really the, the big command of the passage. The big application of the passage is right there in verse 13. I want you to notice a couple things about that command. First of all, it's telling us that the spiritual life is not a passive life. Not a passive life at all. I've often heard people describe the spiritual life as let go and let God. No, not according to Paul. According to Paul, the spiritual life is not passive. It's incredibly active. We have an incredibly active part to play. There's much that we need to do. It's interesting, the verb here, put to death, is what we call a continuous present. It looks at habitual action. God is saying the habit of your life, what you do every day is you need to put to death the deeds of the body. Through the power of the spirit, you need to constantly be doing this. The spiritual life is a life of activity, day in and day out. We need to build a habit of putting to death the deeds of the body through the power of the spirit. Now, Paul doesn't give us a lot of details in this passage about how to do that. What does it actually look like to go out today and do this? He gives us more details in other passages. One of my favorite is 1 Corinthians 9, 27. The beginning of the verse, Paul says of himself, but I discipline or literally bruise my body and make it my slave. If you want to make your body your slave so that you no longer give in to its sinful desires, but now you use it for righteousness. If you want to make your body your slave, what do you need to do? Practice discipline you got to discipline your body. And now Paul's getting practical. Now Paul's getting to that thing the church has come to call the spiritual disciplines. 
How do I put to death the deeds of the body by practicing the spiritual disciplines, those, those habits and, and repeated patterns of behavior that God has designed to help me bring to an end the desires of the flesh and grow the desires of the spirit? Now, if you look through the Bible, if you survey scripture, there's a lot of spiritual disciplines that God has given us. I'll share just a few of them. You can categorize them roughly into two groups. The first set is spiritual disciplines of engagement, where you are engaging in an activity. You are pursuing something. These include, but are not limited to prayer, to study, meditation, and and memorization should be added to that, of the word, Uh, worship, service towards others, gratitude. These are practices you put in place. Uh, The second group of spiritual disciplines are what we call disciplines of abstinence. They're characterized by sacrifice, and they include but are not limited to solitude and silence, fasting, frugality, and giving. These are practices or habits that the Bible lays out as tools to help you grow in the spiritual life, tools to help you put to death the deeds of the body. Now, these need some explanation. These spiritual disciplines do not grow you. These do not transform you. What does? What grows you? The spirit. It's by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. These in and of themselves are worthless. These are simply the context or the place in which the spirit works. It's like if you said, I want to go listen to a great concert. You might go down to Reliance Stadium in Houston. Not because the stadium plays good music. It doesn't play music at all. It just happens to be the place where great bands come to play music. Same thing with the spiritual disciplines. They don't transform you. They have no power in and of themselves. They're just the place where the spirit comes into your life and works his magic, where he transforms you and grows you. The spiritual disciplines in and of themselves, they are simply tools to make you available to the spirit's power. I like how Richard Foster put it in Celebration of Disciplines. He says, in and of themselves, the disciplines have no virtue, possess no righteousness. The disciplines place us before God. They do not give us brownie points. It's really significant to help us understand. When we look at that list of things, so many people are tempted to to practice those things because they think that that stuff makes them holy. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Those are just habits. All they do is place you before God so he can make you holy. If you are doing this list of things out of a desire to earn God's favor or out of a desire to look good in front of other people, then you are completely wasting your time. You might as well go watch football because this isn't doing you any good. If you are instead practicing these things out of a desire to be transformed, out of a desire to place yourself at the spirit's disposal so he can work in you and transform you, then he will. He will grow you. He will do incredible, amazing things through you as you practice these habits. So let me leave you with just a couple really practical questions. As you look at that list, do you see one or two of those disciplines that's really not part of your life right now? Maybe you tried it one time. Maybe you've never tried it. It's just not really part of your life right now. It's not a habit that you are practicing. With those one or two disciplines in mind, second question What do you need to do this week to start putting it in place? To start building this discipline into a habit? When are you going to carve out the time? What what day are you going to set aside a few minutes to work on that discipline? Who's going to hold you accountable to do it? 
What exactly are you going to do? I want you guys to leave with a plan of action. Which of these disciplines do you need to work on? These are tools, gracious tools that God has given you that make you available to his spirit to give you the life you have always wanted, a life of victory over sin, intimacy with the Father, and confident hope in the future. That life is yours if you will put these into practice. If you will build these as habits in your life, they make you available to the Spirit so he can transform you. Let's pray for God's help. Let's pray for his conviction to see what of these disciplines we individually need to put into practice. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have filled us with your spirit and that through your spirit you are in the business, you are working to transform us. You are changing us and growing us. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Father, I pray right now for for all of us here, I pray that we would live spirit-led lives. For those who are still in the flesh, they have not yet even received the spirit, Lord, I I pray right at this moment, Lord, help them to understand that Jesus really did die for their sins, that everything they need for for righteousness and for life is already theirs through Jesus Christ. Help them to believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. I pray that you would make that truth plain and clear to them. And I pray that for the rest of us, Lord, who have believed that truth, I pray, Father, that you would help us to live spirit-led lives. I pray that we would be willing to turn from our sin that we would be willing to abandon our sin. Lord, we confess we can't do it without you. We do not have the power in and within ourselves to resist sin, Lord, but you do have the strength. And so, Father, we, we are willing, we confess to you, we want to turn from that sin. Please, Lord, through the power of your spirit, help us to grow in righteousness. We pray that the spirit would really take possession of our lives. We pray that he would grow us in these habits, these disciplines, that these would become characteristics of our life through which the spirit would grow us and transform us. And we pray, Lord, that as we let the spirit lead in our lives, as we give him the ball, Lord, please, through your spirit, grow us in victory over sin. Grow us in intimacy with you. Help us to experience the fullness of what it means to be your son. And grow us in confident hope in the future, Lord. Help us to really know and appreciate what it means to be your heir. I pray, Father, that you would be at work in us, transforming us into men and women who serve you well. All for the glory of your Son, through the power of your Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.